Thank you for tuning in to listen to this sermon from the Ville Church. To find out more about us and our weekly scheduled services, please visit theville.church. I just have a bone to pick today. I think I always have a bone to pick. Last week, I think I was on the same thing or whatever, but we're going to go into the same thing. But, like, I just see where these gray areas or whatever, whether it comes into um, politics, when it comes to any type of structures in this world, it just it has to be exposed because people suffers, suffer when it's not exposed, right? Like, we have to distinguish what is what. We have to kill a gray area. We have to make sure people know what it actually is because if not, it's hurtful. Um, I know a lot of y'all probably seen this stuff with Charlottesville last night, right, or the other day. And uh, the mayor said this right here, excuse me, the governor, Terry McAuliffe, whatever his name is, Alife, I don't know, but something like that. But this is what Governor Terry said. He said he was speaking to the white nationalists or the Nazis, whatever we want to call them, but the people that were, you know, causing the problems. He said, you pretend you are patriots but you are anything but a patriot. He said, people are putting their life in danger around the globe. He said, they are patriots, you are not. First thing he did when he took to the news, he was like, let me kill a gray area real quick because I don't want anybody that's actually watching thinking that this is all good. This isn't all good. We need to make sure we actually condemn this because if people start gravitating to this gray area or to that far side of really being rooted in this, he was trying to make sure there's no room for people to be nonchalant and be in the middle and be okay with this. This is not okay. He said, shame on you. Actually get up out of our city and you will lose. That's what he said. You get where I'm coming from? It's killing the gray area. Martin Luther King said this right here. This was from the letter uh, from Birmingham jail. He said, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate. It's the person that's in between, right? He says, who is more devoted to order than to justice? More devoted to politics than to justice, so to speak, right? And he says, who prefers a negative peace, which is in the absence of tension, to a positive peace, I think I want a peach, but which is, the, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with you, I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Now peep this line that's in bold on the screen, right? Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. One more. I want y'all to get this point about the gray area really hard as we go into the, to the Bible today, right? Frederick Douglass. Y'all have heard me quote this before. I think it's amazing because it comes from somebody who's an abolitionist, somebody who's an ex-slave, um, somebody who's a scholar, somebody who actually was all the way in that and understands the concept of being enslaved, right? He says... I find since, re since reading over the foregoing narrative that I have in several instances spoken in such a tone and manner respecting religion as, as may possibly lead those unacquainted with my religious views to suppose me an, op an opponent of all religion. To remove the liability of such misapprehension, I deem it proper to append the following brief explanation. What I have said respecting and against religion I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. Listen to this statement. I love the pure, 
peaceable and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slaveholding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. He felt the need to make very clear that he was indeed a child of God and an activist for the beautiful, true gospel, right? It means his setup, how he normally spoke, he was aware that he's like, man, Mr. Douglas, yo, you, you hate Christians? I said, nah, homie, you, you're getting my words twisted. I love Christ with all my heart. That thing that you're actually asking about when you say that, that, you, that you're coupling me up with, I don't mess with that. I hate it, matter of fact. And so he needed to distinguish, like, homie, we are not alike. I'm not like them. And the Christ of the Bible is not like them, right? So in today's day and age, we live in a society where, like, everybody has mixed this whole thing together like some type of just, like, Kool-Aid or whatever. You know what I'm saying? And it's like we stand arm in arm with all the fakes and everybody else and the people who's just playing the game. They go, you Christians. They're like, nah, I'm not like homie. I don't do that. Not that I'm better, not that I'm self-righteous, but a part of the reason I'm different is because I'm going to raise my hand and say I'm a sinner saved by grace. So let me get into this. Let's, we, we, we heard Frederick Douglass. We heard Dr. Martin Luther King. We heard, we heard Gev, Governor Terry, right? Now watch how Paul breaks it down for, for the people in, in Corinth, right? We're in 2 Corinthians 11. I think we didn't preach this scripture so many times in this church. This whole deal or whatever, we ran through it, but it's so beautiful that we back at it again. All right? So we're going to start at verse 1 and we're going to roll through it. Paul says this. He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I have a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Just to set this up properly. Paul is feeling some type of way. He's feeling some type of way because the people he brought the gospel to and he came and made a gospel mess and the church formed. People are whispering them in their ear with, some, with, with, with a fake gospel, all right? So that's the context of everything we're going through. And Paul, when he says, I have a divine jealousy for you, He's saying, I have, an, I have an, anxi an anxiety for you. Like, I have a love for you that if I think somebody's messing with you, I'm disturbed. Like, I'm disturbed. It, it, it messes with my peace. It messes with my peace because I know God sent me to you. And, 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 and my labor was towards you. You're actually dear to me. I feel this often. I feel it often. You know, I walk around the church. Sometimes I think y'all probably think I'm a creep because I'm always like touching people's arms and shoulders. I can't stop and talk to everybody and, and see about everybody's stuff. But it's not just a pat. It's that I actually see you. Sometimes I see people with stress in their face. and I'm like, man, they're probably going through something. But I got I to go somewhere right now. But sometimes I'm touching people and I'm like, I just want them to know that, yo, I'm standing near you. Like I feel whatever is maybe going on. Regardless, I have a prayer to say for you, right? Or something in my heart, I'm like, I go to sleep at night and I think about many of the members in the church. When I see people who stop coming or whatever, and I make a call and I'm like, well, let's meet. And then I can't meet with them and all type of stuff is going crazy. My heart is actually up at night over that. Because I'm like, forget the fact that they're not just physically here. But I'm like, what's Satan trying to whisper in their ear? What's he trying to do to my brother or sister, Right? Somebody who's actually supposed to be in the kingdom with me one day when his glory is come, like, when, like when our bodies are made new. And they, they, like, I'm looking for that day. But the enemy's trying to snatch them. I have a problem with it. But that's not something just for pastors. That's for the whole entire body. Right? That's for all of us. All of us in our seats, we should feel that way. It doesn't mean if you're a lead servant in the house. It doesn't matter. If you're an elder, it doesn't matter. The love of God 
is looking to work through us in a way where like we feel our neighbors, where we're in unity, that we're a body, right? Because it says we're one body. You may be an arm, you may be a toe, no matter what you are, we all feel it if our toe starts hurting, right? You might get a headache over your toe hurting, whatever the case may be, but it's the same thing for the body of Christ. We don't assume evil of each other, right? And the reason we don't assume evil of each other is because we're all in a sanctification process. So it's it's, it's actually logical that we're going to misstep, do little wild stuff, drift off for a little minute sometimes, a little bit, whatever, whatever the case may be. Start looking a little strange sometimes. Nobody should be like, oh, what is, what's going on? It's what the enemy does. But we should be like, let's be vigilant to protect each other, right? Let's be vigilant to stay on top of each other and love our brothers, right? Verse 3, he says this. He says, but I am afraid. What is he afraid of? That as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from, your, from a sincere and pure devotion of Christ. That's what keeps him awake at night. It's feeling like somebody's in y'all's ear. Feel like somebody's talking to you crazy. Um, it's messing with my peace. That's what Paul is, is talking about. And then he talks about a sincere and a pure devotion to Christ. Let me tell you what that sincere devotion to Christ is. Um, I'm taking this verse from my brother, Nick Verchoff. He, he, he went over it in Bible study. It's 1 John 2.24. It says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. And what you heard from the if what if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Still in concern. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. So look at this right here. This is what sincere. And pure devotion looks like that Paul is concerned about being tampered with. He says, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you abide in him, children of God. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we have confidence and not shrink from him in the shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Let me, let me explain to you really quick what this means. When it says at the end, when it says, and now little children abide in him, when you see little children, always go into the idea of this is talking about little children following their father, right? Think about your kid or somebody's kids you know. Our safety is when my kids get scared. If daddy's not around, they're like, yo, where they, they, they flip out if they're in the grocery store whatever. If I'm in proximity to them, they're like, I'm good to go. They're going to run around, flip, do whatever, act crazy. They'll even hide from me, but they know that I'm actually a couple feet away. So when it says that, it's talking about you staying in proximity like a child needs to be in proximity of their father, right? So that when he appears, we have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Everybody in here, believe it or not, you sin, right? You sin. Not that you're a slave to sin, but even in your blindness or whatever, even in, with good intentions, we sin. We hurt each other at times, right? So how in the world could you possibly ever stand before God with confidence? You can scream the answer if you know. How would you stand before him in confidence if, you can't, if you're not a perfect person? Jesus Christ, the gospel. Right? Because the gospel covers our iniquities. We're actually giving the gift of Christ's righteousness while he was beat and, 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 and brutalized and killed for our sins. So we take his perfect resume. The wrath of God that was saved up for us goes on him. So what this scripture is actually telling you when it's talking about a sincere and pure devotion, it's not talking about working really hard to be good. It's talking about letting your effort be at falling before the cross, right? And being completely drunk in the idea that Christ has actually died for your sins. It doesn't take away the fact that you have actually sinned. It's truer than ever. But the fact that you are redeemed by his sacrifice is truer than ever, right? 
You want to know when we sin the most? It's when we actually forget that he died for our sins. And we start thinking we actually can do something to kind of make ourselves righteous. Because we've turned our back on the cross and the need for it. Right? The gospel is not about how good we are. It's about how good the Father is. And his goodness has been shown through his son, Jesus. Right? That's the pure devotion. That's the pure devotion. I'm going to keep working through this for you. That is the actual pure devotion. I was talking to one of my homies the other day, right? And person I baptized, and I hadn't seen him in a minute. And so we're talking about some crazy stuff. We're talking about stuff going on in the country and everything else. Then we started kind of dabbling in the gospel and what was going on and everything else. And, and so my man started running on a kind of line of statements that were a little bit concerning for me. And they were really dancing on this kind of self-righteous thing and this works thing. And he hits me with a question. He said something like, I'm going to mess it up a little bit. But he said something like, he said, you know, you know I'm, I'm, I'm asking God all the time, like, um, what, what, what do I need to do to be better? Like, what do I, do, what do I need to do to be better? Or something like that. And I'm, and, and I'm kind of grieving through the conversation for a while. And I'm just kind of like, God, where do I jump in? or whatever and stuff and, and everything, but I'm letting him talk. And when we got to that part, I said to him, I said, man, I said, he, no, he actually asked me, he said, do you think something's wrong with that question? I said, uh, I said not all the way, because I think it's actually good for us to strive, you know, to, to walk holy before the Lord. I said, but something about the way you're asking actually leads me to think that you actually think that you can actually reach a level of righteousness that's good before God. And I said, so I'm concerned that you're getting led astray into this thing where you're actually not seeing the cross anymore. You're seeing working and being good and you've taken it on yourself. And our conversation had a little bit to do with the nature of just some of the racist stuff we've been seeing in, in, in the world lately. Um, and my brother was going through some, some grief and some bitterness. And, and, and when I told him about you know, what I was saying, sharing with him about the gospel and, and being really, really careful with that, I said, because you know, we've all fallen short. I said, so the people you're mad at, right? I said, homie, if they deserve the ax, you deserve it. And when I said that, he kind of just was like, I, he said, I, I, I forgot about that. He's like, I forgot about that. But it was like at the same time, it was actually this relief because it just saved him from working. It was like he was being reminded of the gospel, like he had just drifted a little bit. And he was like, and it completely sobered his whole soul and everything else. And he was like, that's why I came to talk to you. I'm like, man, well, brother, you just reminded me of the gospel too. But I'm going through that whole long thing right there because there is a sincere and pure devotion that needs to be protected vigorously. Do you understand what I'm saying? Your very life depends on it. Your brother's life depends on it. I may need my same brother. I may need him to catch me if I get off point, right? Verse 4. We start at 3. He said, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes, so this is what the deceit looks like. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, Right? than the one we proclaimed, or you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He's basically like, yo, you're letting people run up on you talking crazy. It's like, this is not what I taught, this is not what I taught you. You're letting people come over and act like, play super Christian on you and play you like you don't know nothing, but you know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you don't have to have read 50 books. You know the cross. You know the blood of Jesus. And it's a teacher. It perpetually keeps sanctifying the more you come before the cross. Right? So he's trying to get him to wake up. Let me hurry up. Let me hurry up. I'm excited. There's some stuff in here I want y'all to hear so bad. Verse 5, it says this, it says, indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. So Paul is talking about the super apostles. I know we read in the Bible and you're like, yo, this is thousands of years old. 
This is not thousands of years old. What he's talking about is the same thing we see all the time, where we see people who actually, they need to um, treat you like you never do anything right so they can actually have control over you, right? So the gospel doesn't actually come off as being edifying and actually good news. I need to make you a slave to sin and give you the bad news. Because if I can make you a slave to sin, then I can keep you under my control, right? I'm sure you heard people talk about the church before and their grief for the church. Like it doesn't seem to set people free in their gifting. It tries to hold them in. I've heard pastors talk to me before, tell me my face and be like, hey, we do this right here or whatever. Because if we do this, then all the money stays in one place. What would you say, me? For real, seriously. It's it, it, like there's a need to distinguish. I'm not trying to call anybody out like we're better or anything like that. But we're not that. We're not that. God's people, y'all aren't that. That's not what the Spirit of God has done for us. We're not that. There needs to be a, quick, a, a line. You get what I'm saying? Because we're like, people start talking about the church. I'm like, no, no, I don't. Like, no, homie, some of it is actually true. But you need to make a line, like, like, like Frederick Douglass did. Homie, I'm not with that type of stuff. That's actually not of God. And that's not actually what we do. Right? We didn't come to get the paper. We came to sacrifice. We, we came to see people freed by the cross, by the good news of Jesus Christ. That's it. And we're going to hear Paul go into that. Paul's like, yo, I'm not inferior to these people. He's like, I'm not inferior to these people. Just because they got a dope little robe on or whatever with the little tassels and everything, and they popped a little collar. I don't know what they was wearing back then. Their sandals is shined up and glossy. They had on the Air Jordan sandals. I don't know. But Paul is like, you know what Paul had? Paul had scars all over him. He had it all over him. He had it all over him. But these people in his ear, they're trying to, they're trying to stun on him. They're trying to flash on, on, on his people like, this is what it looks like to be righteousness. We have it together. We have control over everything. It's about power. And God wants to see you abundantly rich. I want you to go draw the biggest house you can actually draw and draw a little stick man of you in it. Shut up. That's the game. Paul is like, yo, they're playing with you, yo. This world is broken. It's wicked. It will devour you. Don't buy into the fake fantasy, right? He's getting mad about his people getting played with. Verse 7 says this. He says, or did I? Paul, Paul is, see how I'm raising my voice? Paul's getting there in the text. And you're going to hear him being a little sarcastic. Because he's at his people, he's like, homie, you don't see what's going on here? Watch this. He says, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? He's basically saying, oh, am I suspect now? You have reason to be leery of me because I actually humbled myself? I lowered myself to see you actually grow so that you might be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? Oh, I'm the one that's suspect. He says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. You know what he's saying right there? First of all, you know somebody by who they roll with sometimes, right? You feel me? Sometimes you can see who somebody is because you might see their crew and you might be like, uh, right? If their heart seems the same. That's not always the truth because I roll with some sketchy fellas, all right? And I love them to death. But what I'm saying is this right here. Paul is establishing his credibility by saying, Yo, the people I roll with, too, they actually sent me for you. You get where I'm coming from? Because when the church actually is full bloom, when it, like, it's one of the things when we actually ask you to give, right? We talk to the people who actually are called to this church and on mission with us and want to see the gospel go forward. But I never ask anybody who doesn't want to give or is a part of, don't give here, sit here and receive the gospel. But what Paul is saying, he's saying like, yo, I ain't asked y'all for nothing because y'all aren't, y'all, it's not even that you're not there yet to give to me. It's like y'all aren't, y'all don't grasp the mission yet. Y'all still playing games. But the people I roll with, they gave me money to come to you. So 
We, I'm not the same as these super apostles. And the people I roll with, the church, the body of Christ, this beautiful church, they're not like them either. They actually came in their pocket for the gospel to go forward. My brothers from Macedonia, my brothers and sisters, whatever, they took care of the needs so you wouldn't be burdened. We come here and we've laid ourselves low for you because we want to see you exalted and see Christ Jesus. Do you get where I'm coming from? That's not like a lot of people who call themselves Christians. Ville Church, this is what we are, what I'm talking about. It's what we are. It's what God is doing in the room. If you didn't know what it is or what's going on, he's calling us into this place where we become so lost in him. We become selfless that we do stuff that actually doesn't make sense to people. That we like love people, sacrifice, give when it don't make no sense. When people got a question like, you sure you want to sow into that or be in that neighborhood? You know there's no money over there. Your church ain't going to really grow like that. So what? The gospel will grow. We're not like everybody else. We're not like everybody else. And it's because of what God is actually doing here. It's not because we're good, not because we're cute, not because we're so on point, none of that. It's because God is married to his bride and we're his bride. I just want y'all to be encouraged with that and to know that. Paul establishes his love for them. He's saying, y'all, y'all crazy right now? Are you crazy to be questioned? Like, peep my resume real quick. What have I taken from you? Why would you question me? You don't see these snakes coming in? Don't be nonchalant about the gospel I've given you. Don't let somebody come in and kind of start twisting it up, making it funny, and railroad you. Don't let it happen. Verse 12. Y'all ready for this right here? I need you to be ready for this statement. I need you to be, the reason I need you to be ready for this right here, because to me, I think this is, this, this verse right here is the whole paradigm shift in our church. This is where, to, to me, this is the volume knob where it gets turned up, right? You feel me? It says, and what I am doing, I will continue to do in order, listen to it, it's so beautiful, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. Paul has made a practice of actually undermining all the suckers and the fakes. He does this. Do you get where I'm coming from? That is a part of his spiritual health and his walk with God. That's why he's scarred up. That's why he's scarred up. Because while everybody's sitting playing games and sitting in their seat and taking it and skinning and grinning, he's like, nah, homie, that's not true what you said. Boom! Punch Paul right in the nose. His nose crooked as I don't know what, right? He's getting, he's getting laced on. He's getting, he, he's, he's getting ran up on. Harmless as a dove. He ain't cutting nobody. He ain't punching nobody. He's just telling the truth. And the truth will get you brutalized. It'll even get you killed. But Paul... He's up for it. I will continue to do. I am, I am doing what I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. He is like your homie. You are not like us. And I can't let people think that you are because you undermine the beauty of the cross in doing so. Do you get where I'm coming from? It's worth acting crazy over. It's worth acting crazy over. I have a problem when we are actually in the public square going up against people, right? And the people I'm going up against actually are supposed to be Christians like me too. I said this last week, and then you get in meetings and people are like, hey, you know, we're all Christians. The heck we are. I don't know you. And I don't mean to be divisive in that. I'm just saying, I don't know what kind of gospel you're reading. When Paul talks about, when Paul talks about, oh, wait on me for a minute. Somebody proclaiming another Jesus? Somebody moving in a different spirit? Somebody kind of with a different gospel? 
it's okay for you to be like, homie, I don't know what you're actually on, really, whatever. Let's talk a little bit and see if our hearts are really, if we, if we run across the same way. I'm not saying be divisive and everything else. I'm just saying everybody isn't who they say they are, right? But maybe I'm talking crazy. We'll see in a second, right? 1 Timothy 6 says this. He says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the, teach, and, the, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for, the contra, for, contra, for controversy and for quarrels and words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So you mean there's actually people that walk around and in their loftiness and their, you know, ungodly, I don't touch those things or whatever. They actually use it for gain. Right. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. He's making a distinction. Right. He's wiping the gray area away. We're not in love with anything in this world because we know it doesn't come with us. Right. We got some things, but things don't got us is what he's trying to say. Right. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Contentment is a powerful thing. He said, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kind of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. I'm reading that scripture for you because he's kind of giving you a cocktail of what's involved in, in this thing where there's this separation. He says godliness, right? He says godliness is a means of gain, a means of gain. So there's people amongst us that godly, actually just being godly works out for them. They'll avoid any of the suffering that comes with the, you know, truly hold on to the name of God at all costs. But I most definitely want all the accolades that come with it, right? I don't want to be scarred up like Paul. I don't want to actually risk my reputation and stand up on somebody and speak up for justice. I don't want to be seen in the street actually walking with somebody who's a known crack addict because it might mess my reputation up. People might start thinking something to me. But what did God call us here to do? And what, am I, what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claims of those who like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. We are not the same. Church, y'all are not the same. I'm so proud of this church because y'all been putting in work for so long. I've been just seeing God do so many things. We don't have a whole lot of ministries that do outreach stuff on so many levels like programs and maybe one day that'll be where we actually go but I know one thing about this church I can go talk to most of the people in the room and they got stuff going on with their neighbors we got second mile inside of Brentwood we got Baselli was on Moncrief and was on Buckner for years serving the community people put going where people don't want to go in the city because it doesn't cause gain so we should celebrate that we should celebrate that. When we do a job fair in Brentwood, we should celebrate that. My brother Nathan Caldwell, he's out changing all every day. I went, to, I went to one of his meetings for his job, and I couldn't believe, like, there's nobody working with him that hasn't heard the gospel. You get where I'm coming from? That's what God is doing in the room. Our teachers. <sighs> Crazy proud of y'all. Crazy proud of y'all. Crazy proud of y'all. Helps me sleep well at night. Helps me sleep well. That's when the anxiety goes away because I see the fruit of what God is doing in the room. People who are willing to sacrifice. Cramming people in their car to get them to church. About to get a ticket. Straight up. People who actually have got in trouble for serving people and loving people. Big Phil. Out traveling, preaching the gospel, doing shows in all type of places where people have never heard the word of God. Verse 13 says this. 
For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. What did he just say? Disguising themselves as apostles of Christ? People do crazy stuff like that? Verse 14 says, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Paul is not playing. I'm not playing. I'm not playing because your soul depends on it. Your soul depends on it, right? The other souls, the people that will come and be a part of our family and our church that we'll celebrate in heaven with one day, their soul depends on it. If you let somebody move the marker on what the cross, it's behind the screen. There's a cross behind the screen. Just imagine it with me. All right. All right. It's behind the screen. You see it. If you let somebody move the marker on the beauty of the cross, this thing gets real ugly. It's worth being, don't be nonchalant about it. That's what Paul is saying to them. He's saying, yo, be awake. There's at, it's, a, it's a thing, people. It's actually a thing where people disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. That is actually a thing. That's what he's telling his people. Wake up. Wake up. This is not what I taught you. Somebody's been slipping some stuff in the Kool-Aid, right? Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. What do you think his servant's going to do? He's saying, wake up. Guard your heart. You know, um, you know sometimes how people kind of come with their vague statements to make a point, you know? Sneak a point in on you, like tell you some crazy stuff about some lotion or something, but to make a point about a gray area. What I just read to you is not one of those times. It's not it. He's getting straight to the point. They disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Verse 16, he says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so, that may, uh, so I, may, I too may boast a little. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, what I am saying with this boastful, boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since my boast according to the flesh, since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. Now listen what he says to them. For you gladly bear with fools being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Let me explain to you what he's saying there. He's somewhat making a slight little jab, a little mockery, right? But he's also, he's in his feelings a little bit. Because like, he's like, you know I love you. And there's probably a little bit of him feeling like, why are you letting these people sneak in? We know that's what he's feeling, right? But he's trying to give them a picture of what's actually happening to them. This twisted gospel that's based off of piety, self-righteousness, Pharisees. He's saying they're coming to make slaves of you. And you've been bearing it. They've been coming to devour you and you're letting it happen. Coming to take advantage of you. Put on airs. I don't know what that means. I don't think he's talking about the Nike ears, though. I'll ask Nelly, though. Some people got that. Some people didn't. Or strikes you in the face. But he's saying, yo, you're letting these people slaughter you, yo. You're getting played for a sucker. And he says, and then you're actually acting like I'm suspect. And he makes the statement. He says, my bad. I was too weak for that. He's saying, I was too weak to let that actually happen. I'm not for them making a slave of me. I'm not for them devouring me. I'm not for them moving the marker on the gospel. I'm not for them talking about somebody who sounds kind of like Jesus but isn't really Jesus but tries to pull his holiness down and make it manageable in the hands of man. I'm not for the gospel that redeems sinners and mankind by grace and mercy, I'm not for it being played with. 
I actually couldn't tolerate it. That's what he's saying to them. He's saying, I couldn't tolerate. He said, to my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. So next, what you see him do in the scriptures or whatever, and I won't go into this, he goes into his list of imprisonments, countless beatings, um, near death, um, 40, uh, what do you say, five times I've received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. Five times. 40 lashes less one. What do you think his body looked like? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Shipwreck, day and night, adrift at sea, dangers, robber. We, we know he was bit by a snake. It just keeps going on and on and on. So he says, sorry, I was too weak for letting people trample over the gospel and steal what I deem precious to me in this gospel that has saved me. And I know that is the answer for mankind is going to save the world. Sorry, I didn't let that happen. He said, what I got to boast about is the scars and this torn up body right here. Right? These, these are actually my trophies. These, these are the things I wear. These are the things that I put on. Right? I put on because I wouldn't let somebody just run away with the beautiful gospel. I didn't tolerate getting played for a sucker because somebody had a shiny suit on or something. Right? So the question is like, why is, why is all of this so important? It's because the gospel is the only way that we can be saved. That's what the Bible tells us. It's the only way that man can be saved. The, 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 sober, the sober vein in all of this is that we're all done. And we're just living in a facade. And the only thing that has the power to redeem man and reconcile him back to God it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only way a community can be healed, right? Gentrification is not the healing of a community. It's the pow powerful stopping into whatever part of town they want to seize the land and reconstruct struck to their pleasure, whatever that is, right? That's, that's not selfless. It's something different. Romans 7, 21 says this, says, so I find it to be a law when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in, in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul has this soberness about his brokenness, right? When I asked the question, I said, why is this so important? I said, it's because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's this thing or whatever, I always call it the sanctification sandwich, where we get, we get caught in between this thing where we're so aware of our brokenness and how we've fallen short before God. And then he comes and he sandwiches you with the grace and the beautiful beauty of the cross that redeems sinners. So you're kind of in this weird place just in awe, like, oh, my God, I'm the worst person ever. And then God is just like, and you my child because of Jesus Christ. And you're just like, it's so hard to comprehend. That's why condemnation works so easy because it's so hard to believe that when you see yourself that God could love you. But it's true. And it's actually our freedom, Right? It's the freedom and the power that we actually walk in. And so there's in this place in this brokenness and understanding that, that it actually causes unity, right? It causes unity and it actually spikes a fight inside of us. And what I mean by that is this right here. When I see people in a wretched situation, in a wretched circumstance in life, I realize that but by the blood of Jesus or whatever, that's the only thing keeping me from exactly where they're at. When I see somebody in there a crack addict or they're completely being whooped on by drugs, I'm not cuter and better than that. And if I think that, then it's a lie. And it's not that I don't have days when, I, when I'm lost in my own piety and self-righteousness, but I know it's a lie. 
It's a lie. So when he says, why do you care about a neighborhood that's torn to pieces? Why do you care about going to serve people that you know are going to actually probably spit on you and be like, we actually don't even need you here. We good, Joe, whatever the case may be. What do you care about going to serve people that you actually know are straight up utterly racist? Why don't you just spit in their face, Jay? Why are you sitting in a meeting with them? Because I'm no better than them. I'm no better than them. And if I say I'm better than them, then I completely deny the cross that saved me, right? That's the sobering thing. This is where this, is where this, inclus- this, this heart and this draw, this is where I, I, I find connection with the Father's heart. Because if I'm like, then I completely miss that the Father looked at me in, in my disgust and still pursued me by his goodness. So how crazy is it for me to be a recipient of that and look at people and be like, eh. Super apostles, apostles want to gentrify the pulpit. They want to corner the church market. They want to get all the prestigious positions of power in the city. And when the oppression flows down like a river in the city, the language of them being Christians is never subtle. So when we go forward and we go to share the gospel with people, I always have to draw a line. Like, homie, I'm not like that. It's one of the things we fight with pushing the gospel forward. Even inside of the context and and neighborhoods that are hit harder, you have to fight this narrative. You have to do what Paul is doing. You have to make a very clear distinction. Because many of the people that have come through and stomped on the neighborhood and the brokenness you see, they had crosses hanging on their neck. So you got to say, homie, I'm not that. The Father, like, I'm not perfect. I'm not good. I'm not wonderful. I won't do it always right. But my father is not that. That story they told you about him, who they said he was, how they said how you get to him and you can work real hard and you need to be better and this and that and you got to do this, do this and do this. All you have to do is receive what he did. He's already done it. It's already, it's already finished. Receive. Receive. I know I'm running long. I'm going to close with this right here. Um, I was in this leadership uh, meeting this week or whatever, and there was this, uh, this girl. She was from Rwanda. Her name is Immaculate Elbagiza. I believe, I believe that's how you say her name. Some of y'all may have heard her story before, but just quickly. She said uh, she was telling a story about how when there was the Rwandan genocide that the people started slaughtering her tribe. And so she was the youngest in her family. So her father and her brothers and sisters, brothers, they sent her over to a neighbor's house who was a pastor. But he was from the other tribe that was killing their tribe. But the father was like, he's a good man. Go to his house. He was different. He was something different, right? So she goes to his house. And he hides her inside a bathroom that was three by four. Three feet by four feet. Eight, eight, I think it was eight of them total in there, right? And so she ended up being there for three months in that bathroom. Couldn't speak, couldn't make a noise. And the leaders in the, in the, in the, in the city, they were on the, on the radio and they were going, go out and kill everybody from that tribe. And she said, they said, make sure you don't forget the kids and the babies, Let me just pause and say something real quick, because something she said when she was telling the story caught me. She said that for years, these people would be on the radio saying they should kill the other tribe. But she said they just thought, she used the word, we just thought they were drunk, like they're talking crazy. We never in our life thought that would happen, right? And then the president of the country died. And the people who took power said, go slaughter them all. I'm just t- I'm, I'm, I'm coming off the thing a little bit, but this is why when we see stuff like what we see going on in Virginia, 
as a black man, my anxiety goes up for real. That's why these threats and these things, they mean something. Because it can turn into something really, really fast. And our country is on the brink of a lot of hatred and a lot of disdain and a lot of strife. And that's why it's so important that the church makes a distinction, distinction of who it is. And it's why it's important that you rehearse what it looks like to actually lay your life down for the gospel. Right? If you're at home and you got a beautiful house, rehearse. Digesting the idea of losing it. Make sure nothing has you. So if you ever have to put it on the line for the sake of the gospel, you're already 10 steps ahead of it. That's just something right there. But Immaculate, what she said was there was a search party sent out. And the search party came to the house that she was at. She said she looked out the window and there was 300 people outside with machetes and guns. And they came in and they searched the house. She said they went inside of suitcases, they went inside of the attic, they went inside of everywhere. And she said she was in there praying and she fainted. And then five hours later she woke up and the pastor came to the door. And he tells her the story, he said, they looked everywhere and they put their hand on the handle, one of the guys did, to open up the bathroom door. And then he turned to him and he said, you know what? You're a Christian. You're a pastor. You're one of us. I know you wouldn't hide anybody and turns around and walks out. I'm telling you that because it caught my attention. This gray area thing is, is serious. It's a serious, serious thing. Thank God that her father knew there wasn't a gray area with that man even though he was on the side of the people that were slaughtering them. But it's scary to think that people running through the streets, slaughtering over a million people, women and kids and babies, <coughs> could dare think that we are the same. So I just want to leave you and encourage you to stand up for the gospel, to kill the gray areas, even if it caused you to be battered and bruised, as Paul was. Because um, our gospel is, the cross is beautiful. And the promises of the cross are secure. And though we may suffer on earth, we will live eternity with him. And I say it every week. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. No man has even started dreaming of anything close to what the Father has for us. It's beyond your wildest dreams. It's beyond whatever house you think you could possibly have that would be amazing. It's beyond whatever car is the flyest thing. It's beyond anything you would dare sell yourself for. And I pray that we all are there together. So let's hold to Jesus Christ. And let's, as a church and as a people and as a family, continue in what God has called us to do. Right? And let's see our city change and our community change. Not because we're able, but because God is able. It's my sermon, y'all.